I'm right to get us in the spirit of arts and culture this morning. Please help me welcome Diane Fluff, the Director of Visual and Performing Arts at Franklin High and the Franklin High String Ensemble. Thank you. 
so much. That was an incredible performance. These lovely students are leaving right now to go to MICA. Do you know what MICA is? They're, they're heading off right now with their director. Uh, we wish you every success there. And thank you to the jazz band in the lobby as well. Again, all under the tutelage of Diane Fluff, our director of visual and uh, music performing arts at the high school. Thank you again. Need my glasses to start. So good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Saturday to everybody. Welcome to the very first Metro West Arts and Cultural Symposium. We're so happy to welcome you to Franklin and so pleased with all that is going on on this particular Saturday that you've chosen to be here. My name is Kay Kelly and I chair the Franklin Cultural Council. Community connections through the arts will be our focus this morning because we know that bringing people together to experience arts and culture is an essential ingredient to thriving and inclusive communities. Today, we meet in person after two years of separation, unexpected upheaval, and incredible challenges. The global pandemic we have experienced has taken a hit on cultural organizations and artists across our country. It is said that Massachusetts is in a cultural depression. Mass Cultural reports that 1,084 cultural organizations that were surveyed lost 780, $781 million in revenue. 3,048 creative individuals lost $31.9 million in income. $31.9 million in income. I'm happy to tell you that here in Metro West Massachusetts, we can report a sunnier view. At this very moment I'm speaking to you, 32 public art statues are being delivered to the Framingham Center Common as part of the Framingham Cultural District's Many Cultures, One Heart Project. As I speak to you, the new Bellforge Arts Center in Medfield is about to open their doors for a spring family festival with music, art, and children's activities. This morning, Natick's Art in Bloom event is about to begin. This is a collaborative event between the Natick Garden Club, the Natick Art Association, and the Natick Cultural District. And nearby in Milford, the Celebrate Milford event is about to get started this morning, where the year-long Brush to Table initiative featuring many local artists will be on full display. And here in Franklin, we are hosting our very first regional art symposium. We're also very busy planning our second annual cultural festival this fall where we will plan for over 10,000 guests. Over the past year, we've seen the Cultural District spearhead a three-day art walk event featuring art and music all over our gorgeous town. The Franklin Art Association is about to open their very first public gallery located in our Cultural District. We've also watched our town jewel, the performing art, Franklin Performing Arts Company, struggle but ultimately succeed in surviving through a global pandemic. They showed the resilience by putting up outdoor tents and following the old adage, the show must go on. FPAC recently closed the Drowsy Chaperone, again bringing in a cast of equity actors from New York City right into the heart of Franklin. We'll soon be able to see shows again at the Circle of Friends Coffee House. Their doors have remained closed throughout the worst of the pandemic but are reslated to open this September. You can bet that when Dar Williams or Ellis Paul is booked there, that 200 to 300 seats will sell out. 
That's potentially 300 people coming in and out of Franklin and thousands coming into town from near and far to see shows throughout the year at the Black Box. These are real numbers and real people coming in and out of our town on a regular basis to support the arts. An American for the Arts study tells us that nationally, the typical attendee spends an average of $27.79 per person per event in addition to the cost of admission. Businesses that cater to arts and culture audiences reap those rewards of this ac economic activity. I ask you this morning to consider the space or the spaces that art and culture could hold within your own town. I ask you to consider the possibilities of what could be if our communities were to house spaces for arts and community, places where people could gather, connect, create, and regroup. Places where community members could come together to learn, grow, and break down the barriers of race, religion, or politics under the safe umbrella of the arts. These types of spaces are created by the dreamers, but also from the realists. They take public policy and they take money. There's a fragile balance between these different variables, but when it can be found, our communities reap the benefits. I hope today that by listening to our incredible speakers that you may be able to consider and dream a little bit about your own town, that you may be able to consider the what ifs and the what could be's. So without further ado, let's get started with our program today. Before I introduce our town administrator, I'd like to thank a few people. I'd like to thank Franklin High School to start with uh, for lending us their beautiful auditorium this morning their tech crew uh, for helping us set up a 10-foot selfie station in the lobby, uh, for providing us with custodians today. I'd also like to thank our Franklin Town Councilors, Kobe Frangillo and Ted Cormier-Ledger for coming this morning, as well as our town administration and for supporting the arts. And lastly, I'd like to uh, thank our state rep, Jeff Roy, for not only being with us today, but consistently showing up for the arts, consistently. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to the most supportive of the arts town administrator ever, Jamie Helen. Good morning, everybody. I hope uh, somebody puts that in my obituary someday, <laughs> that I'm the most supportive ever. Uh, Kay, uh, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, my name is Jamie Helen. As uh, she mentioned, I'm the town administrator, and I'm lucky enough to have this job uh, every day here in Franklin. It's great to be here with you. Um, we just did a series of thank yous, but uh, as somebody who has been helping uh, this group navigate the permitting process, I really would be remiss if uh, we could not give a huge round of applause for Kay Kelly and her job in the Franklin Cultural Council for putting this event together today. Kay is learning the hard way uh, of how to permit an event. Uh, it's not always the easiest, but um, over the last bunch of months, it's been really heartwarming. When you stand up on a stage like I am today, and Kay, uh, when you're intimately involved putting these events together, it's so rewarding to be up here and be in the moment finally. It's like waiting for a great concert with tickets. You're finally there and here, and it's great to be face to face uh, with everybody today after uh, a long pandemic, as everybody knows. 
Uh, so I'm here to do the welcome to Franklin bit. Uh, so everybody, uh, welcome to the town of Franklin and one, welcome to this gorgeous high school uh, and facility. Uh, we are the home to uh, the Franklin Cultural District, uh, one of only four cultural districts certified in all of Metro West uh, with our friends in Framingham, uh, Natick, and Marlboro. Uh, we take that certification and that designation very seriously and we're very proud of it here uh, in town. We are also home to two historic districts registered on the National Register of Historic Places. Many people do not know that. We are home to the birthplace and founder of public education, Horace Mann. Most people do know that. We're home to the nation's first public lending library, uh, who is a cornerstone uh, of arts and culture and development down at the public library. They have incredible program offering that many of you uh, are aware of. And we're home to high quality and diverse institutions of education, uh, including right here, the Franklin Public School District, the Benjamin Franklin Charter Public School, the Tri-County Vocational Technical School, Dean College, and countless thriving local government, civic and nonprofit organizations dedicated to arts, education, culture, and live performance. The town of Franklin is also home to many progressive and thriving mom and pop, local, regional, national, and global businesses, creating great jobs in this community and this region, in partnerships with our schools uh, throughout the community. And finally, we are home to the now, we always knew they were, but now they really are, the world famous uh, Benjamin Franklin books on display at our uh, historic public library, the Ray Memorial Public Library. Uh, as many of you know, but maybe everybody doesn't, uh, Ken Burns recently did a documentary on Benjamin Franklin, and so that has uh, kicked in uh, an interest, of course, in anything Franklin, uh, including Franklin, Tennessee, by the way. We do get a lot of phone calls from Franklin, Tennessee, <laughs> Franklin, New Hampshire. Uh, so it's really been a great boon for the town. And we were luckier earlier this year uh, to have Senator Warren uh, visit the community uh, where she uh, was able to spend some time uh, at the Ray Memorial Public Library. Uh, and when she came in to sit down and, and sign a few books and meet with our library staff, uh, she uh, took the tour of the Ben Franklin Books area and spent a lot of time with our librarians. Uh, and she had the same exact uh, reaction that everybody does when they go into the public library. Uh, I'm gonna try to imitate the emoji of the blown head and just amazing reaction of jaw-dropping uh, beauty in that library. So it was great to have her and I feel like uh, as we move forward, uh, the library, the recreation department in Franklin, and many of our other departments are also uh, supporting the arts and culture in many different ways. For those of you who have traveled here today, uh, and are not from this community, uh, welcome to town and we urge you to explore. Don't drive home so fast. Uh, in addition to the spaces that we just mentioned here, uh, we're also home to uh, many great restaurants and retail shops uh, just down the street in downtown Franklin. And we also boast, uh, in case this is your thing, we boast a world-class brewery, we have a local winery, and an enormous craft distillery and restaurant in one of the town's most unique and historic commercial buildings in town. Uh, I just want to simply thank everybody uh, for coming out on a Saturday uh, in May and for their dedication uh, to uh, arts and culture development here both in Franklin and in the communities where you may come from. 
Uh, I will make a quick plug. Uh, I think the internet probably is improved in the high school auditorium. If you have your phone, you might want to bookmark uh, www.franklinculture.org. Uh, it's an incredible website and it serves as a one-stop shop for the cultural development activities uh, here in Franklin. Uh, I now get to uh, introduce two of the most passionate and dedicated individuals uh, in Franklin who have worked for decades uh, to foster a blueprint in town for the arts. Uh, so please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Pandora Carlucci and Roberta Trahan from the Franklin Cultural District. Thank you very much. Everybody. Yes, decades. <laughs> decades, that is true. <laughs> Good morning and welcome everyone. Um, I'd like to begin by saying that uh, this is Humble Beginnings. Um, in 2014, it was suggested by the then town administrator, Jeff Nutting, and with the support of the town council, that we pursue the distinction of being a cultural district. Seven residents, Dr. Pandora Calucci, Alan Mercer, Sue Sheridan, Steve Sherlock, who's here today and will be doing one of our breakout sessions, Jim Schultz and Brian Berna and myself began holding meetings. After much planning, figuring out logistics, and how to hold an event that would bring attention to the arts, we held three cultural festivals, one in each of the years 2015, 16, and 17. These events were held over multiple days and took place at a variety of locations throughout the proposed cultural district with the major festival performance held at the Black Box parking lot where there was a stage, music, food, and community involvement from many folks. Next, the process of applying for cultural district status began. It involved copious amounts of work, meeting with folks from the Massachusetts Cultural Council, guided tours with Anita Walker, our state rep, Jeff Roy, who is also here today, and many others. In 2017, the town council appointed the first official cultural district committee, and we were granted cultural district status in 2019. Along with Pandora and myself, the current members of the Franklin Cultural District Committee are John Lopresti, Amy Adams, and Catherine Botello, who are present here today, Jamie Barrett, and Brian Taberna, our liaison with the town. Thank you. This morning we're gathered in the auditorium of Franklin High School, which is located on the far north end of our cultural district. The district kind of works its way through Franklin and encompasses many of the structures and locations that our town administrator shared with you this morning. This auditorium is the location of many performances and events in the school district and for organizations and institutions throughout the town of Franklin. Roberta referred to this, but as we were constructing the high school, a group of us walked the hallways and we imagined arts and culture education, theater, murals, sculptures, concerts, and more staged here at Franklin High School 
and at venues throughout the town. Both Kay and Roberta described a number of the cultural happenings that take place in Franklin, from festivals to visual and performing arts. These events are strengthened through partnerships and collaborations in our community. We look forward to growing these relationships, expanding the cultural and artistic offerings for the enjoyment of the greater community, and creating opportunities for artists and creatives. Today's symposium is the result of supportive collaborations by members of arts and culture organizations in Franklin and beyond. Thank you. I'm so very honored this morning to introduce you to Michael J. Bobbitt, the Executive Director of the Mass Cultural Council this morning. I just want to tell you a little bit about Michael before he comes to the microphone. Uh, Michael is an award-winning theater director, choreographer, and playwright who has dedicated his professional career to arts leadership. He began his, began his tenure as Executive Director of Mass Cultural Council in February of 2021 and is the highest ranking cultural official in Massachusetts. Bobbitt serves on the New England Foundation for the Arts, Board of Direction, Directors, the National Assembly of State Arts Agency, Board of Directors, and was selected for Art Equities BIPOC Leadership Circle. He's the former artistic director of the New Repertory Theater in Watertown, Massachusetts, and the Adventure Theater in Maryland. Bobbitt gained extensive experience in nonprofit arts management by training at Harvard Business School's Strategic Perspectives in Nonprofit Management, the National Arts Strategies Chief Executive Program, and Cornell's University Diversity and Inclusion Certificate Program. As a director and choreographer, he's worked nationally and internationally. As a writer, his plays have been published by Concord Theatricals, Broadway Publishing, and Plays for Young Audiences. Bobbitt is the recipient of the Excel Leadership Award, Center for Nonprofit Advancement, the Emerging Leader Award from County Executives of Excellence in Arts and Humanities, and Person of the Year Award, Maryland Theatre Guide, along with eight Helen Hayes Awards. Please help me to welcome Michael J. Bobbitt to the stage. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Feel free to move closer. I feel like you're all so far away. So come on down if you'd like. Hi. <laughs> um, I, I am just so thrilled to be here. I learned um, uh, uh, something today, uh, actually yesterday, that somehow in Massachusetts we skip spring. We go right to summer. Okay. Noted. Noted for next year. Noted for next year. Um, so on behalf of Mass Cultural Council, thank you for inviting me to attend this amazing event, the, Metro, the first Metro West Arts and Culture um, Symposium. Uh, many thanks to Chair Kay Kelly and the whole Franklin Cultural Council. Also thank you to Jamie Helen, Town Administrator, and a big thanks to the co-chairs Pandora and Roberta uh, of the Cultural District and everyone that volunteers on the Cultural District programming. A huge thanks to Franklin High School. This is amazing, it's an amazing space. Um, I'm also gonna, uh, 
point out we have two council members here, town council members here, Ted, who is a theater and a theater artist and a painter, and Kobe, who studied ballet in college. I think we should like, at one of the town council meetings, you should like do a performance. Could have a great idea. Uh, right, you know? Um, we also have two great leaders with us from Mass Cultural Council, uh, Cheyenne Cohn Postel and Timothea Pham. Uh, you'll be hearing from them later on today. Yes, please, applaud, please. You'll be hearing from them later on today, and I, I encourage you to listen to everything they say because um, the, the, the things that come out of their mouths are so incredible, and I certainly do. I also want to say that I am obsessed with the Franklin Jazz Band and the String Quartet. Um, Diane, you're doing an amazing job with this, with this amazing crew. And I, I also have a little um, hair envy of that cellist. Um, I, I just haven't seen hair since the late 1900s. <laughs> It's been a while. Um, I do also have to point out that we have uh, a, a special person here. We have uh, a member of the House of Representatives, um, Rep. Jeff Roy. Uh, it's so amazing to have someone at the State House who is an artist advocating for the support of the arts. Uh, when I met him online, uh, he's so proud of what's happening here. He showed me all the pictures, including the, including Franklin High School and and the uh, and the library. And then when I came here, we got to meet Ray Lynn in her space, and he was just beaming with pride. And we drove around and looked at all the things happening in the community, the park next door, which I spent like another half hour just walking through, and some of the statues in town. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of our um, leaders who are really supporting um, the community of arts that you all have here. It, it makes a difference having uh, that public-private um, artist organizational partnership. I'm, I'm happy to be here among these historic, incredible artists, students, and arts leaders. And I say historic because my goodness, how much is the world changing? A pandemic, a racial reckoning, an insurrection, political unrest, the deterioration of the climate, war, uprising of hate crime, and the Oscar slap. How much can we go through? It's a lot, y'all. Um, what is most remarkable about this is that the art that will be created in this time will be like none other, historic. The phrase, suffering for your art, takes on a new meaning. And that's the romantic version of art that we all have heard about. It's like a movie starring Zendaya. Can you imagine her quarantining in her studio apartment, laboring over a painting, while her neighbor is practicing a violin concerto next door, unknowingly serenading her? And just as she gets to a certain part of her painting, the violinist gets to the allegro in, in, his, in, in their, in their, in their um, concerto, and they start practicing and working together, and, and this fever pitch grows. She starts stressing about the brush strokes and the color of the paint, and he starts going faster and faster and faster, and the camera goes back and forth for a few times. The strings on the violin start to fray, and Zendaya's face is covered with anxiety and yellow ochre paint as she gets frustrated, partly from the isolation, but partly because she doesn't feel that she's great. She's a great artist. And so she stabs her painting and rips massive holes in the canvas and collapses on her futon, crying, why, why, why? 
That is what we need. That is what we love. And don't worry about her. At the end of this fictional movie, she sells the painting for $100,000, so she's okay. <laughs> My point is, what's truly awesome is that one of the ways humans will remember and reflect on this time when all of us are long gone and humans are riding uber dolphins to work because of climate change is through your art. Your art will reflect what you saw. Your art will reflect what you felt. Your art will reflect the human experience of, this, of the 2020s. And when humans, been, when humans of the future teleport to galleries and museums and performance venues to consume your work, they will feel all the things you felt. They will feel your fears. They will feel your isolation. They will feel your frustration. They will feel the weirdness of quarantine. They will feel the back pain from all the zooming. And they will feel whatever joy you could conjure. Because your cup of inspiration runneth over. Sometimes I can be accused of being a Pollyanna, only seeing the good things, choosing to be grateful for the things that I have rather than stressed about the issues swirling around me. They say, and when I say they, I really mean my husband, Steve. Steve says, Michael, take off your rose-colored glasses. But I say, no, Steve. I have wonderful and tortured artists and their magnificent creations to remind me about the stresses of the world. This is why Steve and I collect paintings and go to museums and art shows and the theater and festivals and stroll around town looking at public art because I am obsessed with seeing the world from an artist's point of view. To see the world through your paintings, your sculptures, your prints, your photos, your digital art, your illustrations, your festivals, and so on is so profound. What a gift artists are to the world. What a gift you will be to generations of people. And think of the collective power, the community power that you hold. You all have the power to reflect and project the world through art, with art. What you are and what you possess is so precious. It should be cherished and heralded, and from my perspective, extremely well-funded. <laughs> Artists should be billionaires. Am I right? Yes. The statues in our parks should be of artists. The names of streets and rivers and towns should be of artists. Now with those gifts comes an extremely important responsibility. You must truthfully respect the world as you see it. You must. What we know about the past is mostly documented in art. Books, poems, photos, songs, dances, visual art, plays, and so on. This is one of the ways humans can stay connected to the past. This is the way we cannot make the same mistakes in the future. And because of this, because of this, art is an inherently social justice tool. Artists give voice to the voiceless. You and your art can tell us how you feel about the pandemic, the racial reckoning, the political unrest, the war, the deterioration of the climate, and the re-dehumanizing of people who, who were just starting to be treated as people. What a responsibility. So I ask you, how will your art encourage people to show up at the public square and confront injustice and fight for a better world?
How will your art help heal us and build a better world where anti-oppression is the norm? How will your art create inclusion by being communicators to wider audiences, regardless of where they sit in society? How does your art elevate targeted and marginalized people to a place of reverence? I tell my son, saying, my incredible collegiate marine biologist who got a 3.5 this semester, who is turning to a full-grown man in a couple of weeks, I tell him that my generation and generations before me wanted to make the world a better place. Hmm. I don't know if we did it. In fact, we may have made it even worse, like really screwed it up. In that movie starring Zendaya, I imagine that OG Old Testament God is smiting us right now. <laughs> Tomorrow I fully expect locusts. We should be careful. Well, I talked to my son about his responsibilities to fix the world, to finally fix it, to make inclusive, empathetic decisions that turn this world into the utopia that it can be. A world where empathy is not under attack. A world where race is revered and not feared. A world where we embrace and celebrate the cultural contributions of people of color, of trans people, of women, or others who have been violated and targeted. A world where we can take good care of, of those who need it the most. A world where differences of opinion are just that, a different opinion and a world where the actual world is taken care of. So I say, son, can you and your friends do that? You have to. And for the young people here, this is truly your responsibility because in eight or 10 or 15 years, you will be the artistic leaders of our community. You will be the leaders of our communities. You will be up here giving guest lectures and molding minds and leading institutions and fighting for change. So don't wait until that time, do it now. Fix the things that we have not been able to fix or not make the same mistakes by perpetuating systems and processes and practices that were designed 50 and 1,000 years ago. And the great thing is that you have all the things that you need with you already as artists. What you have in your minds, your hearts, your eyes, and hands is something that only a few people have, a few chosen people. You, amazing artists, have the gift of imagination. And that gift is what makes the world evolve. Imagination is seeing the world differently. Creativity is bringing imagination to life. Art is the product of creativity. Artists are experts of imagination. This is why we must support and cultivate art. Artists have worked all their lives to perfect their ability to imagine and see the world differently. And we need that. The world needs artists now more than ever. Science, technology, politics, communities, and the very existence of the human species and this planet needs you to imagine what the world can look like in the future. How do you see the world that you want to live in? And demand that we bring the world that you imagine to life.
That means we have to show up at the public squares with our creative minds. <coughs> that's not COVID, that's allergies. <laughs> the modern philosopher Daniel Pink talks about the 21st century representing the triumph of our creative right brain skills over our uh, our creative right brain skills that would represent a new golden age of creativity over the procedural thinking of our left brain. And that new golden age of creativity is where artists will lead. He says, the keys to the kingdom are changing hands. The future belongs to a very different kind of person with a very different kind of mind. Creators and empathizers, pattern recognizers and meaning makers. These people, artists, innovators, designers, storytellers, caregivers, consolers, big picture thinkers, will now reap society's richest rewards and share its greatest joy. He talked about the people at the forefront of the evolution of mankind. The farmers during the agricultural age, the factory workers during the industrial age, the knowledge workers during the information age, and now during the conceptual and creative age, the empathizers and the creators. That's you. He's talking about you. Because the world's problems can be solved through creativity. And artists are the experts. Richard Florida, another philosopher, says, there's a whole new class of workers in the US that's 38 million strong, called the creative class. And at its core are scientists and engineers, architects, designers, educators, artists, musicians, and entertainers whose economic function is to create new ideas, new technology, or new content. Today, the creative sector of the US economy broadly defined employs more than 30% of the workforce. That's more than all of manufacturing. It accounts for more than half of all wage and salary income, some $2 trillion, almost as much as manufacturing and the service industry together. Indeed, the US has now entered into what he calls the creative age. To stay innovative, America and our states and our towns must continue to attract the world's sharpest minds. And to do that, it needs to invest in the further development of its creative sector. Because where creativity goes, and by extension, wherever talent goes, innovation and economic growth are sure to follow. So for all these reasons, we have to, sh we have to shout about what we do to everyone who will listen, especially those who make rules in our communities, right? Let's celebrate what we do with each other and then use the collective energy to convince those who make those decisions that we need to be at the forefront of their minds and that we can help with other issues their communities may be de dealing with. I could bring any problem into this room and we'll leave with thousands of ideas. Use the travesties of this time and the months after to fire you up to create art that reflects what we have witnessed and project a better tomorrow. I leave you with one final thought. When all of this is said and done, what side of history do you want to be on? Thank you for making the world a better place. We need you so much. Thank you.
coming? Okay, so, so we'll have time for um, some questions. Uh, and I leave it up to you, you can ask anything you want about what's happening at Mass Cultural Council um, or anything you want to ask me. And we have someone walking around. What's your name? My name's William. William is walking around with that perfectly pink shirt on. He has a mic, so he can help us uh, run around to find, um, find people that want to ask questions. Ask away, please. I've answered all the questions with my speech. <laughs> None? Back there, students. I would just ask. Oh. Oh. I would just ask you to plug, plug the title of that book. I'm actually a big, I teach that book, the uh, book. Oh yeah, what is the title of it? I'm gonna look it up. It's uh, right where you left, right. Oh yeah. It's an incredibly inspiring book. I used it for over a decade with my my Berkeley students. I'll look it up. It's it's a real. Did I turn this off by accident? Um, it's a really great book, Daniel Pink, and also Richard Florida, who started philosophizing. Is that a word, philosophizing? Who started um, uh, thinking about the creative class way back when. And so both of their, their books are, are really brilliant, brilliant thoughts. Do you have a question? Yeah, I mean. You need to speak in the mic. Um, you're, you're filming for Franklin TV yeah. today, so if we can use the mic, we'll help. Could I turn this on? Uh, uh, here, here's a, you know, an overarching question really quickly, Michael. You know, maybe it might be helpful for the, for the audience to just hear a couple of um, thoughts that you may have. You mentioned funding in your, in your talk. Uh, obviously, funding is something I'm always interested in. <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe you can give a quick overview of the, uh, of the initiatives these days and where funding at the state level stands at the, uh, the Cultural Council, specifically maybe the Cultural Facilities Fund as well. Oh, sure. So, uh, Mass Cultural Council currently has in the books 24 different grant programs. So if you don't know about them, you should go to the website, they're all listed. Um, they break down into communities. So in our communities program, there are three different grant programs. One, we have our local cultural council, which you're all aware of. We serve 328, 28 local cultural? How many? 29, 329 local cultural councils that get sort of a pass through from the legislation to, to, the, to each cultural council, council. Some have regionalized, which is why they don't have 351. Um, they also serve cultural district programs, which you are aware of. And we have 51 cultural districts, and there are three more online to be hopefully elected in soon. Uh, they also fund festivals in the communities program. Uh, so if you're putting on a book festival or a street festival, you can apply for funding from that. Um, in our artist program, there are a couple of programs. We have our artist scholarship programs, which is everything, which is five to $5,000 grants or $15,000 grants which is, can be used for anything. You don't have to do a project with that. Uh, we also have our traditional arts program to, to, to fund um, people carrying sort of old traditions forward. Um, and we have an apprentice program where a master artist can work with an apprentice. Um, then in, that's right, that's it in that program. And then we have in our um, organizations program, we have, um, the cultural investment portfolio, which is general operating funds for organizations. We have our gaming mitigation fund, which supports organizations affected by the casinos. So we get 2% uh, of the tax revenue uh, to give out. Um, and then also, well, we got rid of one program um, in the... We got rid of Gateway Projects. 
Oh yes, project. So if you're doing a small project in your community, you can apply for a project grant. In our youth program, uh, we have a few programs, but the two main ones are our Creative Youth Development Program, which supports creative youth development all over this uh, Commonwealth, and then our STARS Residency Programs, which puts artists into your school doing a residency for that organization. And then, as Jamie mentioned, we have our Cultural Facilities Fund. I think the announcement was made yesterday um, of who got funded. But this, is, this comes from the, um, the capital bond budget. And so um, every year we give out about $10 million to organizations doing um, capital renovation projects. And that's, for the most part, it, right? Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Can you do it in days? <laughs> You're never going to live that down. It's on TV. It's going to be on TV. My question is, is there anything you notice that differentiates the municipalities that are more supportive of the arts than not in terms of structural differences, financial, programmatic, cultural choices? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing is having someone in the in the um, uh, the local municipality that is a paid position for arts and culture. Um, all the communities that have that position are having more thriving arts scenes. Uh, and uh, the other thing is just that really intense public-private um, partnership. Um, there are lots of communities that are matching the funds that Mass Cultural Council gives to the local cultural council. So to have that line in the in the town or city's budget is huge for that community. Um, I'm also seeing where there is a cultural plan, where the different stakeholders that are interested in um, uh, uplifting the cultural sector have got together and spent money on building out like a 10-year plan. Uh, I, I, I point to Fitchburg, which I think is doing an amazing job. And I'm going to brag on um, Franklin as I go around because, again, to have so many leaders in this community here to support that is really great. In Fitchburg, they have raised almost $350 million for um, a few renovation projects. Uh, and that uh, includes, so, so, the, so the mayor decided that they wanted Fitchburg to be a cultural destination. And that was one of the platforms he ran on, and he's making it happen. So he got the university there to participate, he got the local cultural council to participate, he got um, uh, the local council and the state um, representatives to also participate in it. So they're renovating an old opera house. They're building two new theaters. They're gonna revise all of, all of downtown to sort of pull people into the cultural sector. And they're also turning an old middle school into artist housing. It's a pretty amazing project. Michael, you forgot. Oh, yes. Goodness gracious. One of our really sort of um, uh, keystone projects is our UP initiative. This is sort of to help organizations um, build more accessibility in their, in their buildings and in their pro programs and their operations. And so organizations apply, they work with us for five or six months, they learn about a whole bunch of things, and there's funding attached to that. Thank you. Good morning. I'm the Cultural Council, and we're really intrigued by the concept of a cultural district. 
And I would like to hear a little bit more about, other than the cachet of having a cultural district within your community, what the other benefits might be. I think you mentioned that there might be grant programs specifically for cultural districts, but are there other benefits to a community in working to attain that status? Yeah, yeah, it's something I have my eye on because when that legislation was written, there was no money attached. And so maybe someday I'll, maybe one of our representatives present in this room will, will sponsor an amendment um, to get some money attached. But um, so that's one of the things I want to do that. And then similar to like the Gateway City designation, I want to see if those cultural districts can also be eligible for other funds around the state. So that hopefully will be part of our strategic planning conversations. Uh, at the moment, we will give you $7,500. We're hoping to bump that up this year just, just because you are a cultural district. And you can use it for whatever you want to market the cultural district, to do some programming, um, to give it away as grants. It's, it's sort of unrestricted. But that's the biggest benefit right now. Well, beyond having this thing you can be super proud of to pull people into your, into your districts to spend money. And I'm so glad you talked about the spending that happens around um, the consumption of art. Uh, so in case you don't know, in the U.S., uh, it's almost $900 billion um, contribution to the U.S.'s GDP from the cultural sector. $900 billion. It's amazing. That's bigger than agriculture, construction, and education. In the state, on the Commonwealth, sorry, the Commonwealth, it is $23.7 billion. 4.1% of the state's GDP comes from the cultural sector. The fourth largest sector contributing to the cultural sector, uh, to, to, to the GDP, is arts and culture. The number of people that go to arts events is four times the number of people that go to sporting events in the Commonwealth. It's huge, 126,000 jobs. So it's huge, it's huge, and I'm working to get our legislators to understand that the more you invest, the more money you're gonna make. Investing in the arts is not a loss leader. It is a revenue generator. And that money, if you double down, the best thing that's the money will come back. Currently, right now, we are um, advocating for $27.4 million for our regular appropriation. Last year, we got 20 million, which is the first time we've been in the 20s since the 80s. Uh, 27.4 represents um, the highest year of funding from um, the state, from the Commonwealth, uh, which was in 1984, 88, 1988, 34 years ago, we got 27.4. So we're trying to get 27.4 now. That doesn't include inflation, that would get us up to 65 million, and I may be asking for that next year. Um, but uh, but, but I, think, I think we can do better. Tell a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> also, Timothea was working on the cultural districts. Is it in the same region? Would it be in the same region in Milford? Yeah, Milford is in England. Okay, so so Timothea is one you should see. She can she can help you. Thank you. Um, as a former cultural district, I'm curious about the and part of my research is on the impacts of the cultural district. And as um, the person for me had just asked, what are the benefits of the cultural district beyond um, you know, just funding for programming? I'm just 
curious in getting into the story. Can cultural districts act as tools for equitable discussion about uh, equitable housing, equitable economic development within the communities? And how can those benefits be accrued by the people who live in the communities and not just tourists visiting these communities? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm from Maryland, and in Maryland, and I'm not sure, maybe because of our close proximity to the federal government, but the arts leaders and the community and the artists were very much attuned to what was happening um, in the state legislation and in local legislation. So we were really there pressing our, um, our um, uh, politicians to sort of like include us in all these decisions. And so we were able to get lots of creative ideas happen. Um, for instance, uh, there was one uh, developer that wanted to build a very large building and, and the, the county was like, ah, I don't know. But if you put an artist space and artist housing, we'll give you three more floors on your building. And another building, they had a garage, they wanted to build a building on top of it and the, the, the county um, executive said, build a theater next to it you keep all the money from the parking meters and then don't charge the theater rent. Um, but all those kinds of, there's a good precedent for all those kinds of things, like the affordable housing thing. Why not use that to build affordable housing for artists um, programs? But I do, I think that again, as I mentioned in my sort of um, keynote, that any, any issue that a community is solving, just bring artists in for like an hour to talk to, to, to generate some ideas about how to solve those issues. And I guarantee you'll walk away with one or two really good, solid, strong ideas that can help. We're working, uh, one of the things we're working um, for is trying to figure out what our um, voice is in the health crisis. Uh, at the moment, we've been piloting a program called Social Prescription, which it came from London, but the idea basically is that when you go to a doctor, they can prescribe medication, but the social prescription idea is that they, they prescribe attending arts events. So if you have a physical ailment issue, maybe they say, here's a prescription to take a dance class. Um, or if you're having, I don't know, anxiety, maybe they say, here's a prescription to go to the symphony. Um, and the idea is that, that art, we know art can heal, so the idea is to elevate that. And one of the things I want to do is with that social prescription idea is sell this to insurers to add to their portfolios. I think they make a lot of money off of it, but I think it's a, a great way to help communities heal and people heal. Other questions? Yes. That's Ray Lynn, everyone. I know everyone knows Ray Lynn, but that's Ray Lynn, everyone. <laughs> I wanted to say thank you, first of all, for being here in Franklin um, yet again. I think all of us can be really excited about what um, is happening in the arts in Franklin and um, in the entire Metroplex region. My question um, is a follow-up from a brief conversation we had a little bit before and how to make um, some of the Mass Cultural Council uh, grant opportunities a little bit more accessible to smaller organizations who don't have um, teams of grant writers or big development departments. Um, that, that was one administrative issue relative to grants, but also the matching funds um, scenario. Um, because for a community like Franklin, which is um, seemingly you know, um, relatively affluent, we're not necessarily an established philanthropic 
So it creates real um, barriers for us to um, access some of the funding um, because raising those matching funds can be a real challenge. Um, I think there are other communities that are far more successful and have a history and heritage of philanthropy. So I'm just wondering if there's any kind of update. I know we do have some nice ideas um, about Oh yeah, I have tons of ideas. <laughs> Staff can tell you. They're like, stop, don't have more ideas. Don't you have a meeting to go to? <laughs> um, uh, so I'll, I'll answer the second um, thing with two points. One is that one of the things I'm hoping to be able to do, um, pending our strategic plan, is to start gathering groups of people that are adjacent to the cultural sector to work with them in convenings and maybe workshops. And so one of the groups I want to gather together is the philanthropic community in Massachusetts to really teach them about why it's important to support more robustly the cultural sector. So hopefully I can start those kinds of conversations. And I'm in the room with them a lot because of our racial equity plan. A lot of them want me to talk about that work. So I have their ear right now. Hopefully I can influence them to just support the art sector some more. Secondly, the, I'm assuming you're talking about the match attached to the Cultural Facilities Fund. So the Cultural Facilities Fund, again, it's come from legislation. It's funded by the capital bond. In the legislation, there is language that requires organizations to match the funds that we give them. The other language is that it's on reimbursement. So to Raylan's point, if you're a small organization and you have a problem with your roof, you can apply for a cultural facilities fund. The application is massively long. Um, and Cheyenne, I don't know if you want to talk about that later. I know you're going to talk about it in your session, yeah. right? Do you, you want to talk about it? I will talk okay. about it. Um, so we're working to work on that. Um, so that application is long. So a small group, a small organization that has a staff who is, you know, doing the work plus writing the grants and doing all the marketing and cleaning the toilets doesn't have eight hours to sit down and write a grant application. They have an hour. Um, so working on that. So if you have a leaking roof and you need $50,000 to fix it, you can apply to a grant from us. But the way it's written, you have to match that $50,000, right? If your project is $100,000, you can get 50 from us, but you have to match the 50. And then you have to do the project and get reimbursed. So it creates a huge barrier. I'm working with Mass Development, who actually gives out the money. We administer it, they give it out, to see if we can expand what can be used for a match, if in-kind services can be used for a match, if, I don't know, even earned revenue can be used for a match. And then we're also working with them to see if they would just accept an invoice instead of having it be reimbursed. So hopefully that will happen. If not, I have to get a sponsor, to amend the bill and then go through the whole process of all of that to get that taken out. Taken out. <laughs> you, huh? Coffee conversation. Coffee conversation, yeah. And, 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 and Jeff will tell you that it's hard to get bills amended. Uh, we're, we're, we just, I think we're going to get this one passed, but we are um, working to change the legislation around who can be on the local cultural council. At the moment, it states if you're serving on another town council, you can't serve on the local cultural council. So we're trying to get that, that changed. Um, and then, Cheyenne, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, about what we're working on right now? Great questions, everyone. Um, but one of my main projects as the equity and inclusion officer in our cultural equity and access team is working on 
citywide um, equity audit of our programs. So uh, CFF, I think, is the one that jumps out because it's large amounts of money. It's a huge application and it's a match. But a lot of our other programs, like our organizational support, our youth reach program, um, we're doing things like eliminating the match in those programs, making funding more consistent, which is difficult for us because we are one-year appropriation, the next year you don't know. Um, we are cutting down on the size of our applications, um, emphasizing uh, the time we want it to take, no longer than three hours, making sure that programs are asking for what they need to make grants and not what they would like to know about the sector. Uh, so kind of separating that stuff out um, and making sure that organizations, uh, right now I believe that organizations around $50,000 is our floor size and we're trying to move that lower to include more community-based organizations we're working on things like accepting other kinds of organizations instead of just 501c3s. Um, we're looking at unincorporated organizations with fiscal sponsors and for-profit organizations that are culturally based. Um, so a lot of programs are doing a lot of work to make those kind of accessibility uh, uh, changes that you're talking about. CFF is the juggernaut, and we're hoping to get there. We're doing a lot of wonderful foundational work to make sure that we know how to make those simplifications that still let us feel that we are uh, ranking responsibly. Yeah, Shine's doing amazing work, amazing work. Um, and just to highlight a few other things, um, things like devaluing ex grant writing experience when you apply. We want a first-time grantee to have just as much of a chance to get that than someone who's using grant language. Also, devaluing the mastery of the English language. We know that we have lots of multicultural um, communities where English is not your first language. And in the past, maybe not at Mass Cultural Council, but in the past, in, from, from grant-making best practices, the quality of the writing was something that was graded, and we don't care about that. It's really about the intent of the program. So we might be allowing people to, do, um, to write in their native language, and then we'll have it translated, or do audio submissions or video submissions. Um, and then the other part that we're working on, too, is uh, uh, heavily sort of um, stepping into our relationship building or recruitment work with people that have not been in our grant um, database. So a lot of outreach. Uh, we've hired people to just do outreach. We're working with the staff to figure out how they can add outreach to their programs. And then also eliminating some of the, the I call them stewardship things that we require existing grantees to do, like formalized evaluative site visits. Like, why are we bothering you? <laughs> you have plenty to do. <laughs> you have plenty to do. Um, and even things like final reports. You have plenty to do. And so we just want to give you money and leave you alone until the next time we give you money. Okay. We're done? Great. Thank you all so much. Keep making great art. Thank you, Lord. Michael, that was incredible, so informative. Thank you, and thank you for answering the questions as well. So we're gonna take a 15 minute break, and there are 
water bottles for you, there's hand sanitizers, there's as many masks as you'd like. Um, there are things to look at. We have four classrooms set aside this morning and volunteers that can help you find your classroom. They're all very close together, so there's very little chance that you'll get lost. Um, so what I want you to know is that each clinic is running two times in a row, which will allow you to choose what you want to see this morning. So we're offering four clinics, Building Community Through the Arts, this is on the back of your program by the way, Sharing Your Arts, Identity on Social Media, Festivals and Community Celebrations, and Equity and Access in Arts and Culture. Uh, you'll be able to choose two of those. The doors are clearly marked with the uh, name of the Clinic, each clinic will run about 45 minutes and then there'll be, again, another break for water. Um, there are also free journals that we purchased for today. <laughs> There's a lot more journals than people here, so take two. And you can use those to write no notes in this morning. They're in the lobby, please grab one. There are also pens there for you. Um, and I would like to just read this book. I just would, uh, Michael, I think this is maybe the same book. It's called A Whole New Mind. It's fantastic, really, it's very impactful. There might be others that he's written on the same, the same one, but it's called A Whole New Mind, Daniel H. Pink, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. Yeah. Got that, Jamie Helen? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a re it's such a good book. Um, I lent mine to someone and I, I bought a second one because I wanted to read it again. It's just really, it really thinks outside of the box. So again, if we could um, give Michael a Hand. He will be here for the morning, but thank you to, for coming to our community, answering questions, elevating arts and culture in Franklin. So appreciated. Thank you. All right, so we're make their way to the lobby. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley, the piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark in Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.